We're going to get started with the Building a Story Brand podcast in just a moment, but did you know J.J. Peterson and I wrote a book? It's called Marketing Made Simple. It's a step-by-step plan to create a sales funnel for your business. It's got five-star rating on Amazon. Five stars. I mean, that's up there with like Chez Panisse. That's up there with the Ritz-Carlton. That's up there with everything that's ever gotten five stars. Marketing Made Simple is the name of the book. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. JJ and I are incredibly proud of it. But here's why we're proud of it. If you create a sales funnel, it will grow your business. We know that what is in this book has made people tens and tens and tens and maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars. You can get your share of that money. Just spend about 20 bucks on the book. Marketing Made Simple. Grab it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble today. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., you and I knew each other before Story Brand. Yep. You brought me in to speak at the college of which you were dean of students. Yes. It was a Christian college. It was. And I spoke at uh, a retreat. A retreat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I spoke about spiritual things. Mm-hmm. How weird that you and I now have a business podcast and speak about business <laughs> yes. things and never really talk about spirituality <laughs> at all. <laughs> when that used to be the center of used everything the center I talked of our, about. Yeah, the yeah. center of our lives. <laughs> yeah. And there's no specific reason for that. We're yeah. not super intentional about that. It's just that I wrote a bunch of books and studied story and then created a marketing plan and we created a marketing thing and it became a multi-million dollar deal yeah. and you joined. Yeah. Today is different. Yeah. I'm actually going to talk about faith on this podcast with my friend Ryan Holiday, who is an agnostic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But he's one of the most faithful and faith-filled guys that I know. Yeah. It's interesting because there's nothing that I've ever written about, I don't think, in my books that I don't still agree with. Yeah. But there's a lot I've written about that I would say, I agree with that, but it might not be true. Yeah. And that yep. is an e- that's the only evolution I've had in my faith yep. is that that might not be true, which actually is going to scare a lot of listeners. Yeah. yeah, I the way I describe it, where my faith has kind of gone in all of that, is that I hold a lot of what I believe like Jello, like it's real, it's true. I can like tell you about it, but if you and I start say like fighting about say uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, you know, right. very like right. hard theological truths that when I start to squeeze that jello and hold tighter, there are pieces that are going to slip through right, because right, right, there are right. pieces that you just don't know. I mean, that that you cannot say 100% Well, and there are pieces that I'm unwilling to defend. Or you know, where die for, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I would die. Believe me, I would die for my faith. Faith, uh, yeah. but not the individual pieces. No, 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 no. not at all. And you that's know. I think that's where it is. It's like both you and I have kind of evolved in that sense of those. I still hold true to all that stuff. There would be people who would say, well, that's cowardly. And I would say... No, I think the more you study psychology, honestly, the more you study story, the more you study marketing, yeah. the more you begin to understand how the brain can be hijacked by ideas, narratives that aren't true. Yeah. They're just not true. Yeah. And you know from studying narrative transportation mm-hmm. that if you say it's a fact that if you go into that forest, you're going to be killed, you'll mm-hmm. die. Mm-hmm. because there's animals in the forest, predatory animals that'll kill you. You have a 0% chance of coming back. If you tell people that, and you also tell them a story about some bold, courageous person who went into the woods, even though they thought they were going to die, and they, you know, and they came back and they got the princess, 
a lot of people will go into the woods. Yeah, they'll follow the story <laughs> you, more than the fact. And that's yeah. what narrative transportation is. Yep. The story hijacks fact. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church mm-hmm. that a lot of people would say, you should be faithful to those principles. It's wrong of you to leave the basic foundation, fundamental principles of the church that you grew up in that taught you the biblical truth. But let me tell you what they taught me, that black men and white women should not be married because they are unequally yoked. Yeah. So should I be faithful to that principle because it was taught to me when I was young and supposedly it's biblical? Well, one, no. You grew (laughs) up and you realize it's not biblical. That's not at all what the Bible is talking about. It was an interpretation by a racist pastor. Yeah. To me, I still hold faith that way. I go, okay, you say that, but I'm not I'm not clinging to it because you've got your agenda. Yeah. And you know, you see what I'm saying? Oh, 100%. So I think there will be people who will listen to this interview and say, well, Don's not being faithful to the Bible. I'm saying, no, I'm being faithful to the Bible. I think the tribe has left the truth yeah. in a lot of instances. Oh, yeah. And we have to be willing to admit that and even break from the security of that tribe in order to honor God yep. by investigating truth. Well, it's Super Soul Sunday on the Story Brand <laughs> yeah, Podcast. Turns out. Turns out. <laughs> this is a one-off episode if there ever was one. Yeah. Here's why I'm willing to do it on a business podcast, because Ryan Holiday was once the chief marketing guy at American Apparel. He's written a bunch of business books. He's sought after for marketing consulting by you know, very, very, very powerful people and powerful brands. But he's also fascinating because he's taken his kind of, it's not a spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it kind of is. But his journey to investigate and look for wisdom mm-hmm. and peace, public. And that's gone the path of the ancient Stoics. Yeah. And so he has tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of followers, if you will, who look to him to curate knowledge from the Stoics mm-hmm. and help them apply it to a way of living. I think a lot of uh, post-evangelicals who still pray to Jesus but kind of, you know, throw out the rest, have found Ryan and found him comforting and have found him a good guide. And uh, I certainly enjoy conversations with him, and, and I'm not afraid of them. Yeah. But it, it is a one-off, if yeah. you'll forgive <laughs> us on the Story Brand Podcast for talking about something uh, so trivial as the meaning of the world <laughs> it's rather so trivial. than, you rather know, that than little, how to make money. little thing that we never, <laughs> nobody ever thinks about. And yeah. this is also true. Anybody who says J.J. Peterson and Donald Miller doesn't have a soul, <laughs> which is many people. <laughs> Are about to be refuted. That's just our staff. That's just, That's just our staff. staff. <laughs> All right, here's my conversation. It's a wonderful conversation. His new book is called Stillness is the Key. The book that I read almost every morning is called The Daily Stoic. He's an incredibly inspirational and, uh, and intelligent guy. Here's my conversation with Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, last time we talked about Conspiracy, which was a fantastic book and a fascinating conversation. We got a lot of people writing in. That book was a bit of a a diversion from the path that it seems like your life has consistently been on, and that is this path toward wisdom, both business wisdom, life wisdom, spiritual wisdom, and that led you to the Stoics and studying the Stoics, understanding Stoics. First of all, before we get into it, what is Stoicism and who are the Stoics? Yeah, so Stoicism is an ancient philosophy. It, it originates in, in Greece, uh, sort of not long after the time of Socrates and Alexander the Great and Aristotle. It eventually makes its way to Rome, where it sort of is the leading ethos or the, the sort of driving philosophy of, of the empire. 
it trickles through all sorts of you know different historical niches. There were sort of Stoics in the Renaissance. There were Stoics at the American Revolution. The, the founding fathers were fans of Stoicism. There was Stoicism in the American Civil War and prisoner of war camps in Vietnam. And then sort of now it's on this resurgence today. But the interesting thing is that the sort of the four virtues of Stoicism are actually the exact same as the four cardinal virtues of Christianity, courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. So Stoicism actually, like Jesus and Seneca, are born in the same year. So if you want to sort of see uh, like the sort of simultaneous developments of these philosophies, it's not a religion, but it is a way of living, a way of thinking. My sort of summary of it is basically that, you know, the, the Stoics believe we don't control what happens, but we control how we respond to what happens. So it's sort of a philosophy of resilience and perseverance and sort of inner and external discipline. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't want my listeners to misunderstand me. I'm somebody who prays to Jesus. I would not consider myself an evangelical anymore. I would have at one time. And if you say, Don, why not? I would say, I don't exactly know. (laughs) I don't exactly know. You're thinking I'm deeper than I am. But I think a lot of it was going to church for years and hearing things from the pulpit from people that I respected, and I mean no disrespect, that I simply didn't think were true, and not biblically true, not they were just sort of things that were made up in order to please a congregation and get butts and seats. And you know, and I just kind of got tired of that and said, okay, I'm looking for a different angle on wisdom here. What is your path to the Stoics? And the reason I say that is because I think a lot of people who, like me, say, I pray to Jesus, but I don't dive deep into the theology mainly because there's so much unbelievable tension and argument within the evangelical church whenever you talk about anything theological. And I just, when I'm tired of the tension, i got to live my life. Is it a bunch of people like me? Because I read the Daily Stoic. You've got a book called The Daily Stoic. I read it in my morning. It is my morning meditation. Are you finding a lot of people like me coming to you? And are you like me in some way? Because I don't know your backstory. Yeah, I mean, you know, the irony is, so you read Daily Stoic, I wouldn't identify as a Christian. I, I wouldn't say I'm an atheist, but I, I'm agnostic. But this is the book I've been reading in the mornings Dietrich now. Bonhoeffer, he's, he's holding yeah, up a candle. Yeah. yeah, this is Seize the Day, so it's, it's one— That's fascinating that you're reading Bonhoeffer, because he would, you know, he would be a Christian. Yeah, right, exactly. So to me, wisdom is wisdom. And, and I think my journey in Stoicism, I, I was introduced to it when I was about 18 years old. I read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, I have that here. Yep. You know, you pick up this book and it just sort of, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Here you have the most powerful man in the world writing these notes to himself about how to be a better person, how not to be corrupted by power, how to do the right thing, how to stay balanced, how to manage his temper, how to manage temptations, right? And so I think Stoicism is not incompatible with religion, but what I tend to like about it is that it seems sort of apart from religion. So, you know, the the argument in Christianity, I would say, is sort of like, look, if you don't do these things, you might not go to heaven and you may end up in hell. That's sort of this sort of theological argument. And there really isn't any of that in Stoicism, but there is an argument, and I think there have been Christian writers who have picked up on this as well, people like Rob Bell, sort of like, no, maybe actually the argument is if you do these things, uh, or if you don't do these things, you will live in hell, like that your life on earth will be a kind of hell. There's some Venn diagram overlap with Christianity right there, where some people believe the kingdom of God is being built here on earth by us in some ways. 
Yeah. You know, and that's a mystic idea. Let me ask you this, because I know in, in the Daily Stoic, your book, and we're going to actually talk a little bit if we can get to it, about Stillness is the Key, the new book. There's some talk about death. Yes. And I was just in Jerusalem not long ago and walking through the old city and was given a tour uh, by a very wonderful, close Jewish friend. And he said, look, you know, in the old days, in the old city, and, and the old city in Jerusalem is actually not the old city. The old city has been buried and rebuilt in a little bit of different location. But in the actual old city, you would buy trinkets to sacrifice to the gods. You'd buy animals to sacrifice to the gods. And in some pagan religions, you know, they would actually sacrifice human beings. So we know this probably with the Inca. We know this with a bunch of pagan religions, what we would consider pagan religions. Judaism is born out of this idea that God told Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac. So if you think about it, just as a marketing principle, and I know you were the marketer for you know a bunch of big brands and all this, that's a damn good deal. Like, like we don't have to we don't have to sacrifice human beings anymore. Which even if that isn't true, even if Judaism isn't true, if it's some sort of giant cult, that's a wonderful progression in humanity. We are no longer going to sacrifice human beings. At least this Jewish sect is not. Then Christianity comes along and says, you don't actually have to sacrifice anything because Jesus is the sacrifice for us. All of this, all three evolutions of that idea, from pagan sacrificing a virgin to Abraham not having to sacrifice Isaac to Christ acting as the sacrifice that is a propitiation on God's wrath for humanity, all of them have one presupposition, and that is God demands a human life being taken in order to be happy with you. So for me, it's like, wow, that is a serious presupposition yes. and something to contend with, debate. And if you haven't, you, you are not a person of faith. You're just a person who's following somebody else. You literally have to sit and go, does God desire a human sacrifice? And if you're a Christian, that has been propitiated by his son. That is, you know, that is the satisfaction of that. But what that solves is a very market-driven question, what happens to me when I die? Yeah. I mean, those are really good answers to that internal question. Whether or not it came from some primitive idea of, you know, you can see a Darwinistic sort of theory of like, I don't want to die, so kill that guy. And then a religion gets born out of that. But what do the Stoics say about the problem of death? They probably talk about nothing more than the problem of death. You know, Eric Rahm wrote an interesting sort of edition of Seneca recently. He's a translator, and it's called, you know, sort of Seneca, How to Die. And it's just Seneca's thoughts on death, and it's 250 pages. Wow. So if you get a sense of, of this is just one excerpt from the guy's work, I mean, Cicero would say, you know, to philosophize is to learn how to die. The, the Stoics sort of believe that death is the most important, most consequential thing that happens to us. And yet it's the thing we, we think about least, that we are the least practiced in, and that we sort of stick our heads in the sand and pretend won't happen the most, right? And it's so, very hard to get your head around the idea that you will no longer exist and think and reason and debate or perceive. It's very hard to understand that someday it may happen that you no longer perceive. What do they do about that? How do they resolve that? Death is this sort of constant looming thought in the Stoics, not as a sort of a pessimistic idea, but as a sort of a form of empowerment and urgency. You know, Marcus Aurelius says, uh, you could leave life right now, let that determine what you do and say and think. So it's a lesson. Death is the ultimate sort of adjuster of your moral compass? Yeah, it's the period at the end of the sentence. And so what are you going to say with the space allotted to you? I think one of the most 
profound things I took from Stoicism. It comes from Seneca. You know, he says like, okay, don't think about death as something that looms in the future that you're moving towards. He says, think about death as something that's happening right now. So he says, the time that passes belongs to death. So he's saying, like, I wouldn't go, hey, if I live to be in my 70s, I have roughly 40 years left. He's saying, I should think I've already died 30 odd years. That death is what life was like before you were born. Death is what the past is because you can't touch it. You can't change it. You can't relive it. And that when you die, you know, again, if you don't believe in some idea of a heaven, that death is nothingness. It is going to sleep and not waking up. You have no consciousness of it, no awareness. And so that might seem a bit nihilistic or depressing, but for the Stoics that they're saying, oh no, actually what that means is this is the one shot that you've got. How are you gonna live it? What are you gonna do? One of my favorite things in meditations, Marcus is reminding himself over and over again that posthumous fame is worthless that it doesn't mean anything to be remembered after you're dead, that Alexander the Great can't sit there and reflect on the glory of his accomplishments because he's not around anymore. And it doesn't mean anything to him that Alexandria is still named after him. What matters is what you do right now. And so I think for the Stoics, you know, death is this sort of idea of carpe diem, you know, seize the day, do what you can now, live by what you can now. And though, that if death is simply the end, There's not anything special about living for a really long time. So it's better to live while you can by your internal compass and by what you think is right. And that, you know, sacrificing those things in order to live longer is not worth it. So, you know, famously, Cato, one of the famous Stoics, commits suicide rather than capitulate to Julius Caesar when Caesar overthrows the Republic. Seneca commits suicide, you know, at sort of Nero's orders. He's sort of this Hitler-esque figure. So for the Stoics, it was life is important in that you have it right now and you should live well, but that death isn't something to fear. And it's definitely not something to betray your values in order to avoid. Gosh, (laughs) we could use some of that in the evangelical community. I mean, really, we just don't talk about death as a way of adjusting values empowering courage. That's just not how we think of it. We think of it as something to escape. Yeah, which is interesting in the evangelical community. If you think what happens on the other side is actually better than right now, why would you, you know, be willing to humiliate, betray, you know, do the wrong thing to avoid that. I mean, I think uh, Bonhoeffer is obviously a great example of that. Like the Christian church appeased and capitulated and collaborated with Hitler for many, many years. He was one of the few people that said, no, like I would rather die than be complicit in this. And by the way, I will give my life in an attempt to stop that from happening. And so for the Stoics, this idea of death is something to get familiar with, to get up close and personal with, because it's it's really the things that we're not sure about, that we're uncertain about, that are sort of shrouded in mystery, that, that end up sort of leading us astray. What fascinates me about you is you're an agnostic. I love that you're not an atheist, because I see atheists the same as I see sort of true believers in almost any religious system. And that is, I see them as unwise in this sense— they believe they understand everything enough to know that they could come to a, a decision. And I say, wait a second, you're not that smart. You don't have this infinite brain that understands everything. There has to be this place for, but I might be wrong, 
And so agnosticism, at least it has that. That was the journey for me. I mean, I, I grew up Catholic and then my parents sort of switched us to more sort of evangelical, non sort of denominational kind of church. And then, uh, you know, I went to college and I read Richard Dawkins and I, I you know, I read right. Sam Harris and I, I read... Richard Dawkins drove me crazy for that reason, though. I just thought you're so arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> but look, if you, you know, I feel like if you grow up in a church where someone is sort of telling you they have all the answers, right, right. but they, they actually don't do a particularly great job proving or explaining why what they're saying is true. Or admitting that they could be wrong. And to me, that's the sign yeah, of wisdom. Right. Yeah. There's no doubt. And because it has been the sort of dominant belief system for so long, there's not a lot of, you know, sort of incentive or pressure to really solidify that thinking. It's, it's sort of gotten, I think, lazy in some ways or entitled, right? It's just sort of, you should believe this because I say you should believe it. And so then when you read someone as articulate and smart as Richard Dawkins, it can be really seductive and eye-opening and you go, oh, this guy actually has reasons for why he believes what he believes. So I went towards atheism, but then the more reading that I've done, the more I've just sort of studied, you know, I think what was eye-opening for me is I studied history and you read the biographies of, of these people. You know, Abraham Lincoln was an atheist for a good chunk of his life. And it's only as he gets older and wiser, as he goes through loss and pain and witnesses the horror of the Civil War, that he starts to sort of gravitate towards religion. And so I think my agnosticism comes out of like, who am I to say that I know more than all these other people that I admire? And so I'm at least willing to sort of wrestle with the uncertainty of it. And I think the other part of it for me, sort of done some 12 step stuff in the past, although I, I wouldn't really identify as an addict or anything, but, but this idea of accepting a higher power as being really important, just in terms of accepting your place in the universe, which is to say you are not the center of the universe, I right. think is really, really important as well. And and it's hard to do that. I think it's important for leadership. You know, I do pray. I pray to Jesus. I also pray to a Jesus that I'm not sure who that is, <laughs> but I pray to a Jesus, to the Jesus, I would imagine. And uh, so does my wife. And yet, one of the reasons I do that is as a leader— I don't mean to say my faith is utilitarian, but there is a utilitarian aspect in the sense that, as a leader, I need to know that God is going to hold me accountable to care for these people that I'm around, and that he cares for them more than I do. It's important for me. I see you nodding your head. It must be important for you. Well, I want to get into your new book, okay. Stillness is the Key, because essentially, you know, it's practical advice on how to live somewhat spiritually. In fact, you say there's three aspects to the journey, mind, spirit, body. There are a lot of people who are would consider themselves sort of post-evangelicals who are looking for a path. And while I would say you're not trying to define a path here, I would say this is helpful in the journey. Explain to me why there are three parts. Where'd you come up with the three aspects? And did this come out of the Stoics? It does definitely come out of the Stoics. But I think what's interesting about that word stillness is that it appears in Almost all of the religious traditions, all the philosophical schools, you know, whether we're talking Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, whether we're talking the Bhagavad Gita or, you know, we're talking Marcus Aurelius, this idea of slowing down, of tranquility, of inner peace, even the Epicureans and the Stoics who are supposedly sort of these opposites, 
you know, for the Epicureans, the word was ataraxia, and for the Stoics, it's apatheia. It's an inner and external stillness. So it's not being jerked around by the chaos of the world around you, but then it's also not being roiled by your own racing thoughts and anxieties. And so, I mean, I think this sort of the world events that we're experiencing right now, people are realizing like, oh, you know, how can I have something inside myself that I can retreat into, that I can rest on, that I can that can give me sort of peace and comfort? You really need that. And for a lot of people, that's been religion over the years. But I think, unfortunately, philosophy, we were sort of talking about some of the, the ways that religion has gone astray. I would argue that religion actually has done, over the longer period of time, a much better job of serving real practical needs Agreed. for human beings in Agreed. the real world compared to philosophy, which has become hopelessly abstract and impractical and elitist. I would agree. Even in a, you know, we have some problems with social justice in the white church going back, but when you look at the whole of it, this is a great benefit to culture and society. For the very reason that if it weren't for that evangelical megachurch and that pastor with the crazy hairdo down the street, we would probably still have human sacrifices. So, you know, we got that out of the... <laughs> so the whole thing is a good thing. I think stillness is a test. I really do. I, I think if I've got a day off, you know, Betsy's out of town, my desire to distract myself, go to a movie, eat some ice cream, whatever, it's a test. Am I okay sitting on the back porch watching the grass grow? Am I okay with that? Or am I going to run? Am I going to run from myself, from... The, I mean, literally, the subconscious idea of death. What am I going to run for from, that is, and stillness to me is a test. And I'm proud to say, 48 years old, I get better and better at the test as the years go by. And that's my only goal is at 85 in a rocking chair, the day before I die, to be comfortable in stillness. Well, you know, Blaise Pascal, who famously comes up with Pascal's Wager, if people are not familiar with it, Pascal's Wager says, look, God may or may not exist, but if he does exist, it's a safer bet that you be a good person and generally follow the laws <laughs> of Christianity that, than to violate them and then find out that you were wrong. But, you know, he famously says, and I, I quote him at the beginning of, of Stillness, you know, he says, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think that's true when I look at the best moments of my life. It's not that I was sitting quietly in a room alone, but the best moments of my life, I was usually quiet, sitting, or deeply engaged in sort of one meaningful thing, whether that's spending time with my children, whether that's reading a book, whether that's looking at the Grand Canyon or, or, or whatever it is. It certainly, I wasn't doing 15 things at the same time. It didn't involve my cell phone. You know, it didn't involve making money. The best moments in our life, I tend to find were defined by stillness in some form or another. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Ryan Holiday in just a moment. Listen, if you're in need of a marketing makeover and you're not sure where to start, I've got three videos that will really help you tiptoe into this. They're at 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. Go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. In just three videos, I'll help you figure out about five or six things that you're doing wrong on your website and in your marketing. And if you change them, you'll make a lot more money. Go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, and watch those videos today.
I want to hit each of the three aspects. You've got many, many things to talk about when it comes to the mind, the spirit, and the body. You, the book is broken down into three parts. Becoming present is one of the things you talk about in the mind. Is this a discipline of becoming present? How do you become present? I found myself just today, Ryan, you'll appreciate this. I was throwing a ball for the dogs because I got out of one interview and then we still had like 30 minutes before I had to call you. So I'm throwing a ball for the dogs. I'm looking down, there's 11 minutes till I call you. And I'm like, I just wish the 11 minutes. And then I said, what you, Miller, what'd you just do? You wished away 11 minutes of your life. <laughs> Be present, pick up the slobbery ball. What's the discipline of being present and why do we need it? To tie back to what we were talking about earlier, when you are rushing all over the place, when you are going from thing to thing to thing, the Stoics would point out that what you're rushing towards is death, right? You are you are rushing away from <laughs> being alive. The very thing you fear. <laughs> right, and, and rushing towards not being alive. And again, and this is a death meditation, but one of the, I think, the most potent and powerful things in Marcus Aurelius' meditations, you know, he says, when you tuck your children in at night, say to yourself, they may not be here in the morning. And that is a, a deeply sort of unnatural, complicated thing to do. But what I think he is saying, and any parent who has you know, tried to put a couple of toddlers down to bed knows that you're stressed, it's stressful, you say, oh, it's supposed to happen by seven o'clock, so then you're stressed that it's not happened at seven o'clock. Marcus is saying, slow down, be here for this. You don't know how many of these you have. Don't rush through it. And he would say, by the way, what are you rushing towards to go check some more emails, you know, to go watch, you know, something on Netflix? You should be here for this moment. And, and look, I do think that we call it the present is an operative word there. That sort of double meaning is important. And yet a lot of us sort of fritter away this gift because we're thinking about something else, because we're regretting something, we're fearing something instead of just being here for right now. Well, that's as it relates to the mind, as it relates to the spirit. You talk about healing the inner child. Yeah. And one of the things that you're hitting on, and some of the listeners have noted it, is the problem of trauma. Yes. The problem of actually just not being able to be present because the mind needs to be healed. Yes, or not being able to enjoy or deal with things rationally and clear-headedly in the present moment because, like I quote Judd Apatow in the book, he was talking about how it wasn't until his like fifth or sixth movie that he had to realize the movie studio is not my parents, right? And that they are just giving me notes on this script because it's a business decision. They are not my parents who didn't understand me, <laughs> who didn't treat me well enough. And you know, that yeah. that's something as a creative person, you have to realize like most people were compelled to become writers because you know, they felt like they weren't seen or they felt like they weren't heard. You know, like ambition it usually comes from a place of emptiness, of not feeling fulfilled. And although that can be a, a driving force, it makes it really hard for you to enjoy your success or to, to do that difficult thing. And so, yeah, your editor is just trying to make your book better. They're not trying to neglect you the way that somebody else did. The, the fan that is saying something negative about you, they're not questioning your worth as a human being. And so you have to be able to sort of detach, heal that inner child, deal with your trauma, or it makes life in the present moment very, very difficult. I should say, as it relates to the spirit, you have a section in the book in which you instruct people to accept a higher power. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly what we were just talking about. That's interesting. I mean, from an agnostic to say, yeah, you, you know, and I don't think it's utilitarian for you. I think you actually have a humble spirit about that. I mean, I think so. I think it's first and foremost that you are not the highest power, right? right? right and then right. whatever, you know, for the Stoics, it was the Logos, 
you know, it could be mother nature for you. It's, you just got to realize like, hey, you're not pulling the strings. And like, even if you're a total, you know, rational atheist, you're accepting that this massive sort of indifferent force is directing universe, even if it's just random chance. Right, right, right. So it's not you. Even if it's random chance, which I don't believe it is, there is an order. I mean, it's unquestionable. Yes. But there is an order. All right. In terms of the body, taking care of the mind, the spirit, and the body, you talk about saying no. Why is it important that we learn to say no? Like say no to ice cream? (laughs) I mean, that that might be part of it. I mean, I'm more talking like how do you have – here, let me see if I can pull up the wall here. This is a picture I have on my wall of um, Jonathan Fader. He's a sports psychologist. He gave me this. That's a picture of Oliver Sacks. And behind Oliver Sacks, he had a picture on his wall that just said no, exclamation point. And the point is, the more successful you get, the better you get at what you do, the more incoming, inbound, unsolicited sort of things come at you. Hey, do you want to ghostwrite this project? Hey, do you want to come talk here? Hey, can I, you know, pick your brain? And obviously, I, I believe that, you know, this can't be all about you. You have to sort of serve the common good. You have to pay it forward. But at the same time, it's very easy for you to give up the most precious resource you have, which is your time. And so how can we say everything that we're saying yes to, we are saying no to something else. And so the way I think about it is what am I saying no to so I can say yes to the things that matter. And so for me, that's my writing, that's my family, that's my health. And once those things are taken care of and there's extra time, then sure, of course, I'll, you know, I'll agree to this or that. But but it's really sort of knowing what's most important to you and then making sure that your decisions reflect that. You know, as I read through the different sections of mind, spirit, body, I'm reading things like become present, limit your inputs, empty your mind, slow down, think deeply, start journaling, cultivate silence, beware of desire, bathe in beauty, accept a higher power, enter relationships, say no, take a walk, seek solitude. The very last thing you say is actually act bravely. Yes. And as I read this list, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, to me, describe Christ. Sure. I don't want to throw evangelicals under the bus. I really don't. These are my friends and people I greatly admire, and I'm so grateful for that upbringing. And still, you know, in the Venn diagram, 90% of it we agree on. I would say, though, that one of the issues that I had with evangelicalism and, and sort of sitting in church was that the very last thing you say is act bravely— And I would say if I could embody the whole thing right now, if I could embody the controlling idea of evangelicalism in this maybe even decade, it's seek comfort, not act bravely. Seek comfort. That kept being the idea of let's seek comfort. Let's seek where there's not, we're not ruffling feathers and everything's going to be okay and some sort of formula that helps me control God so that I can have inner comfort. It's seek comfort. I think that's right. Or, or seek power so I can be comfortable or seek... Seek control. Yeah, seek control. And, and you know, at the core of Stoicism is an acceptance of the lack of control and the focus on on the self, on doing what, what one can in response to this lack of control. Control what you can. Yeah. But no, I agree. And look, I, I thought you did a great Instagram post a couple weeks ago about sort of social justice that I thought was important. And honestly, if that's too big of a step for people, I mean, one of the things that I'm sort of struggling out here in rural Texas, and, and I, I've got a lot of friends in the evangelical community like you, is, is that, for instance, the sort of insistence on going to church, right? Even when sort of there's almost no 
sort of health authority that's saying like, hey, we should all get together in large groups right now. <laughs> right, you right. can't attend classes at University of Texas, but you can get together with 300 people to sing hymns in a church in Texas. And and I get that faith is important and I get that it does good in the world. And, and I get that there is constitutional protections for that thing. So that's not what I'm talking about. What I think I'm talking about and you're talking about is how do the decisions that you make as an individual connect to the rest of the world and what are the impacts of those decisions? So the Stoics talk about this idea of sympathia, that we're all sort of part of the large whole. Obviously, Jesus, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Hillel says, you know, explains the Torah as love thy neighbor as thyself. All the rest is commentary. You know, I think I think <laughs> all the religious schools have come away, have lost sight of this. We tend to think it's about certain, you know, political beliefs or certain rituals or, or whatever. And to me, all of that is secondary to are you doing what is good? Are you following the example of Christ or whomever, you know, Marcus Aurelius says, let's not waste any more time talking about what a good person is. Let's just be one. And I think the problems of a decadent society is that we get selfish, we get self-absorbed. We don't think about how our things, you know, impact or affect other people, particularly the less fortunate than ours. And so I'm just somewhat dismayed. Yeah, even in this pandemic, people of all faiths and types that are sort of their primary reaction to this is, I'm not at risk. Why should I have to change my behaviors? Right. It seems very selfish. Yeah, that, that's not how Jesus walked through the earth. That's literally the exact opposite of, of how he lived his life and what his life was about. You know, I like what's happening here in Tennessee on that note. Our governor, Bill Lee, he basically sent out a document that said, look, under the Tennessee Constitution, we can't stop you from having church. Under the United States Constitution, we will not stop you from having church. I think, and I agree with Lee, that that is very, very, very important. I think it's more important than life, honestly, freedom. And I think it's worth saying this may kill some people. And he also said, please be considerate. (laughs) please, Please use some common sense. And every pastor I know has. And so, you know, this isn't a bash on uh, evangelicals, or, but I agree. I want to end with this idea of acting bravely. And to me, you know, yesterday, I don't know when this will air, but another young black man was killed by a police officer and it was caught on film and uh, it, it was devastating and tragic. And I went to create another Instagram post. And I just thought, I'm not going to do this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing another Instagram post and, and called my staff and said, what can we contribute and we came up with this idea of bringing some social justice leaders in to help them clarify their message and have a larger bullhorn to be able to speak to the world about what's happening in that community instead of an Instagram post, right? Yes. And somebody on my staff, and I understood, they said, Don, I'm 100% for this. It makes me nervous. And I said, you know, I know why it makes you nervous because we may say something really stupid. Emotions are very high. But I think we got to act courageously anyway. We got to do this. What does acting bravely mean? Yeah, I mean, look, this virtue of courage, the Stoics sort of believe that there, there is no wisdom, there is no justice, there is no discipline without courage. It, it requires courage to take risks. If doing the right thing was easy, everyone would do it and it, it wouldn't be an issue, right? But that's not how the world is. And so for me, it's, it's, you know, sort of what are you doing in the situation that the situation calls for? What is your duty as a human being, as a citizen, as a parent, are you sort of stepping up? And I love the expression, like, it's not a principle if it doesn't cost you 
something. And so as a writer, look, the sort of moral courage of being a writer pales in comparison to the physical courage required to, say, be a soldier. But I'm always amazed, you know, I'll write something maybe that's a little bit political or I'll say something that I think and I'll get a bunch of emails from people and they'll sort of say, like, um, you know, why did you have to say this? Keep politics out of it. You just lost a fan. You'd have more fans if you didn't say. And it's like, I don't think you understand why I became a writer in the first place. I didn't become a writer <laughs> to have as many yeah. fans as possible. I became a writer and I built the platform that I have so I could say what I think is true. And the consequences of that are not important to me. What's important is, do I say what I think? And and so, look, yeah, at, at a minor level, you know, these are times of political correctness. These are times of sort of, you know, public shamings. Can you have the courage to sort of speak up against the mob? Can you say what you think is true? Can you insist on sort of truth and kindness when those sort of traits are rarer than ever? I think that's important. But also, I mean, I think other forms of courage are obviously more important and more rare. You know, do you step up if you see someone being bullied? Do you, you know, if someone falls in a river, do you jump in? I, I tell the story of of Camus. If you've read The Fall, the premise of that book is the character is walking through the canals of Amsterdam and he hears a woman go into the water. And instead of diving in and looking for her, he convinces himself that he didn't hear anything. And it's the sort of the ignoring the call, so to speak, right? If that's part of the hero's journey, ignoring the call. And I think, you know, these are times where people know what's right. They know what needs to be done. I, I've you know, been lucky enough to go to Washington a few times and consult for different people of different political parties. You're amazed at what people are willing to say and think and do in private, but what they're not willing to do because they're afraid of being criticized or losing support or whatever. So, you know, I think, yeah, courage is ultimately the most important thing. And no one is saying that it's risk free. It's just I would also say that, uh, you know, being a coward has risks, too. Yeah, I think life demands courage. I, I mean, literally, there are people who are listening who are struggling with the courage to get out of bed and put on their socks. Early this morning, I, I watched a, a bird being chased by two smaller birds that were protecting the nest. And, the you know, yeah. you become a bird watcher for a while and you think it's going to be so peaceful until you realize there are predator birds. <laughs> but there's something about the fabric, the DNA of life itself that is risky. Yes. And it's scary. And in order to, to stay alive, you have to have courage. And... Um, Ryan, I think this has been one of the most inspirational interviews that we've done on the show. Uh, we didn't get much into business, sadly. We'll have to do it again. Ryan also writes business books. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. The book that I read that Ryan wrote is called The Daily Stoic. You can get it on Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. There's also an email we do every day for free if people can't afford the book right now or whatever. How do you get that? Just dailystoic.com slash email. Great. And his new book is Stillness is the Key. Ryan, so wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for coming on again. John, I appreciate it. Thank you. So, clarifications. Many caveats. <laughs> <laughs> no, let it stand. Betsy let it and stand. I pray to Jesus. <laughs> let it all stand. Let people write the emails in. I am no. not agnostic. Uh, and so on and so on. In fact, yeah. I'm a reformed pastor <laughs> yeah. under a pen name. Tulip is my julep. <laughs> no, none of, now that is not true. That, that I know is not true. But, the, you know, all the stuff that in the book, the idea of the stillness, right? That, that Yeah. That's something even in this time, it's really interesting that it's during the, 
the shutdown, right? During the COVID shutdown, it since my body is more still than it's ever been, mm-hmm. but my mind is not. Yeah. And I have had to go back to, so I used to do on regular practices, I would go to monasteries for a like, season of silence and solitude. Mm. Sometimes it would be a day, sometimes it'd be a week. And I would just go and kind of be still in those spaces. And then I would also practice stillness in the noise. So I would actually go to a monastery and be in a monastery for silent, complete silence and solitude for like two or three days. And then I would actually go on a wine tour. Huh. And I would practice what I would call stillness on the wine tour as well. Take what I learned in that moment of complete solitude and silence, and can I carry that over on a wine tour? Then I might go back to a monastery. <laughs> and then I, I did this one time. I went to a monastery, and then I went to Vegas. And I didn't go crazy in Vegas, but like I sat at a pool. You did this I, as an exercise? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or were you just, you just happened to be back to back vacations? No, I, I did it intentionally. You were going to say, can I keep this up in Vegas? Yeah. Can I keep the, sti- <laughs> the, si- the stillness that I felt on the mountain in the noise? I did the opposite. I went to Vegas and said, can I keep this party going? <laughs> when I go to the At monks. the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? I couldn't do it. <laughs> oh, that's weird. But I bet you could if you actually did. But, it, you know, it's it, it's interesting because that I find that in this season that I've kind of let some of that go because you go, oh, well, I'm just home more. I'm not traveling as much. Yeah. You know, I'm not out being busy, so I'm a little more physically still. But I found that even in this, I need to get back to a stillness of my mind and my soul. And focusing on meditation and faith and all of those things that really grounded me when I was super busy and out there, right. I let go in the stillness of my body. Like when my body became still, I let go of the stillness of my mind. Man, there is no, yeah, there's no success or money or accomplishment you can earn or buy that beats a comfort and stillness. Yep. yep. I mean, that's what everybody's trying to find. Yep. Right. Yeah, what a great conversation. What a great goal. Yeah, for real. By Ryan. Ryan, thanks for coming on. You can come back anytime you want. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can buy Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.